Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Oh, we're going to have a fun hour. It's the prayer series, Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, T-Dog is in the house. T-Dog is in the house, Bill. You know, I can we, hardly wait. We have guests for this hour, and then we have guests for this yes. hour. And this this falls into that latter category, I'd say, when T-Dog is on with us. Yes, and, uh, you know, sometimes we freeze on how to pronounce his last name. We, we have, I think Dr. we pronounce Eric it. Tannis. 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 I'll say it all. Yeah, I, I, and we'll let him sort of it, clarify. Because it's T-Dog. It, it's T-Dog to us. Yeah, yeah. and just so you, all of my listeners know, he is the professor and chair of theology at Biola University, he is unbelievably interesting, smart, funny, and all of that. He's um, This is how important this guest in this hour is, Peter. Here's the prep I did for today's show in preparation. <laughs> I had a medium latte and an almond biscotti. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was the full extent of my prep. I, I would say that's even more rigorous than I would have guessed, Bill. You know, because when, when T-Dog is on the air, you, we literally can just, just ask a question and off we go. Yeah, you thought I was going to uh, prepare questions for him. Yeah, no. No, no, well, no. I, Maybe it's under a misunderstanding. <laughs> you at did this misunderstand. Point. Yes, I did. I yes. clearly did not get the memo correctly. Well, we should welcome him to the show. I think it's great. I'm looking forward Eric, to it. Eric, welcome. Guys, thanks a lot. I appreciate you playing that good Fleetwood Mac riff yeah. right before I came in. Yeah. I was a little distracted by it. Now I want to just go listen to Fleetwood Mac. I That's get it. Good That's, stuff. That's Lindsey Buckingham, one of the finest uh, guitarists. Yeah. No, I agree. Indeed. So you're smarter than I realized. This is so interesting. <laughs> so we did. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so hip. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> we did like zero show prep for you today, just so you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's good to know, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. We want to see where the Holy Spirit's going to take us this hour. All right. We want to talk about prayer. We, you know, last time you were on, I think we cut you about a half hour short, and we felt terrible. Uh, we thought, well, let's just reschedule and get him back on. So oh, we great. want to start with that. And we also want to dig into, uh, you teased us with uh, 20 things that Christians need to stop saying. So we're going we're gonna to bug yeah. you about that as well. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So That's let's good. let's start with that passage of the friend that goes and knocks on his friend's door at midnight and and says, uh, I got a buddy in town and I need some food and and the and the guy says, Well, I got my family in bed and it's late and I you know, I and he keeps knocking and knocking. What is God trying to teach us in that message? Is he saying, This is how I want you to come to me? And be persistent? Yeah, there's this tension, isn't there, in Submitting to the sovereignty of God and trusting Him as the one who knows the beginning from the end and loves us and is working for our good all the time. And at the same time, we're in relationship with Him, and He tells us that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, and He wants us to deepen in our dependence on Him and our pursuit of Him and His ways. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm going to have to apologize to Jacob when I get to heaven because for a long time, I couldn't stand the guy. He, <laughs> he, he was a scoundrel. I mean, yeah. he swindled his old blind father with the help of his mother. He, he's kind of a mama's boy. He, I just never liked Jacob very much. But 
then I really thought a lot and studied this idea of his name as one who wrestles with God, that God changed his name from the deceiver to the one who wrestles with God. And that's such a fascinating scene, isn't it, where where he's saying, bless me to, to Yahweh. And and that pursuit of God, that earnest, dependent, desperate pursuit of God is something God honors and loves and wants from us. And that'll show up in persistent prayer. It'll mm-hmm. show up in in not going to all my strategies and my formula and advice from my friends, but my first instinct has to be a desperate dependence on God that shows up in persistent prayer where, where he's the one I need far more than anyone or anything else. And that is shown by the way I pursue him in not just asking, but, but like we talked about last time, seeking his face. Eric, what you're touching on here, I think, is probably, if I could highlight maybe one of the top three to five questions that come up in any of my classes and in any institution in which mm-hmm. I teach, it is this question about, I suppose you could frame it as agency, meaning do human beings actually have any authentic agency to affect outcomes through prayer? And and so I'm curious if you could kind of speak on this a little bit more in terms of maybe from the from the framework what is the danger if we if we lean too far on this continuum towards God's sovereignty? And what might be the danger if we lean too far that it's all dependent on human beings and prayer? I, I don't even know if that's the right way to frame this question, but boy, I, it, it seems to resist a really easy answer. Yeah, it, it's easy to think about big theological topics along attention. And I, I actually do teach along attention, but the more I've been teaching theology, the more I realize I think I teach on tensions so I can eventually get to the point where my students and I realize that the tension isn't there as much as it seems to be for us. Hmm. And, um, and and so what I mean by that is it seems like it's got to be either or for us, that either God is exhaustively sovereign or our activity, our actions, our prayerfulness, our prayerlessness actually matters. And the Bible doesn't put it in some sort of difficult tension. It just talks about it so matter-of-factly and doesn't see a contradiction. And I think it's because it's a relational concept, first and foremost, rather than a just a philosophical one or an abstract thing. It's, it's an infinite God relating to finite creatures meaningfully without ever compromising his infinite nature or somehow turning us into robots in relating to us. But at the same time, getting his desired actions and results and activities. And and so it's an infinite God relating to finite creatures meaningfully is what it boils down to. And the Bible just over and over again just states it quite matter-of-factly that uh, God knows the beginning from the end and a man reaps what he sows. Hmm. And, yeah, it doesn't seem in the Bible to be this intractable tension. It just seems to be a description of a relational quality between an infinite God and finite creatures. And as part of it, maybe too, Eric, that uh, from God's perspective, he's working within infinity and within time and space. But from the human perspective, we're only working within time and space. And even with the best of our imagination, we can't, really truly imagine infinity because it's it's happening in time and space and maybe that's why part we experience the tension but from god's perspective there isn't any attention uh, in this peter i think that's beautifully put and and i i actually literally bring a broom to quite a few of my classes and i call it a brain broom 
because when we think about these kinds of concepts, our brains should be blowing up and we should have to sweep them off the floor <laughs> because because these are these these issues where the incomprehensibility of God comes through. So we never believe anything that's that's illogical or irrational um, or incoherent, but we certainly believe things that are well beyond our ability to understand. And you're exactly right. And this is one of the difficult things. This is unique to God. Uh, some uh, A being who can change the hearts of human beings without somehow disconnecting their brains and their wills. And we can't do that. We can't change anyone's heart. I, I, we feel the frustration of that all the time with loved ones in our lives who are making foolish decisions of one kind or another. But but God can. He moves in and he, he works in me so that he gets a Godward response. And he actually says, well done, Eric, for it. When it's ultimately his sovereign grace that's doing it. And so he alone has that ability. So it's so hard for us to, to think about the possibility of it. All right. This is Bill speaking now, who obviously says less interesting things than Peter. <laughs> 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 but uh, Eric, in, in James 5, 6, it says uh, that the, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Mm-hmm. So what is our mindset uh, if... If we say, boy, if I can get Eric to pray for me on this thing, maybe it will really increase my odds right. of getting my prayers answered. That's totally it. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's, we, we talk about that, though. And yep. I've got people praying for me, and I like who's praying for me because I think they're really godly. So that might increase my odds. Yeah. What is that mindset? What does that mm-hmm. say? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it, it's it's talking about Elijah asking it for it to stop raining, and then it stops. And then it starts when he asks for it to start. And so... Uh, the the picture here is a righteous prophet who's walking with God, who is godly, isn't perfect. We know that. Everyone's sinful. But uh, his prayers are in alignment with a knowledge of who God is and his ways so that it's not contrary to God's revealed will. And and so righteousness isn't a perfection, but it is a description. Generally, Job is the most righteous man in all the land, and and there is a, a degree of righteousness where someone could be characterized in that way. And it's not because they have all this moral virtue that somehow amounts to justification before God, but it is to say this person has a wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord that has a degree of righteousness where this person is in communion with God, where there is an effectiveness to their prayers we need to acknowledge. Eric, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more even to what the idea of righteousness means. You sort of alluded to it in just a second, but I, I think there's this sense in which I, I must, I'm crushing my quiet times this week, so I must be righteous <laughs> or something along those lines. So what does this mean to be biblically righteous? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually took an entire course with Douglas Moo, who may be the world's leading expert on righteousness in the Bible. And that was the name of the course in my PhD program. And it was a fascinating study because we actually have to let righteousness be what it is, depending on where we are in the Bible. We can't read the Bible in a flat way. So I I would study righteousness, say, in the book of Jeremiah. And it was an ethical righteousness where it, it was a righteousness that it was indicated by your scales when you're selling spices in the marketplace are just. You're not cheating people in your business. And so there is a very ethical component to this. And the, the, the Old Covenant talks all about the law. And the conclusion we need to come to, though, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, when Jesus 
preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, and he lays out all of the requirements of kingdom people. And he says even things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't be part of the kingdom. You should not get to the end of the Old Testament or the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, great, now I have my marching orders. You should say, I'm done for. I, I can't live to this standard. Where can I go? And we go to Jesus and his righteousness. That's why it's important to let, say, Jeremiah have a kind of righteousness that ends up crushing me if I try to come up with my own version of that instead of running to the imputed righteousness of Christ that finally when we get to Jesus in the New Testament is offered to us. But, but the law should be a schoolmaster, the Bible says, that points us to Jesus where we depend on his perfect righteousness rather than our righteousness with amount, which amounts to filthy rags. Eric, you are so, yeah, you are right. so good. I mean, you, you just make the gospel irresistible. Yeah, indeed. You do. So we're, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I really hope you're, you're still here. <laughs> I do, too, unless the rapture comes. Oh, I get it. I get it. But we'll all be gone. We'll then. listen for the trumpets, indeed, yes. I hope so. I hope so. And uh, it's Tonus, right? It's Tonus. Tonus. Like Thomas with an N. Tonus. You said it Thomas. right the first time. Actually. Oh, good, yeah. good. Then I freeze and I, I, I say it wrong. So. <laughs> we'll write it down this time. It's, it's T-Dog. T-Dog does, T-Dog. Yes. T-Dog yeah. does, yes. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs> Sounds good. We are back with the prayer series. Peter Kapsner and I are talking to Dr. Eric Tonis, and we are uh, excited that he's joining us once again. He's professor and chair of theology at Biola University. He's written a lot of cool stuff, and he's just a very interesting guy. So, uh, Eric, let me ask you this. When we are engaging with people and we say things to people we don't know very well, like, I'd like to pray for you. And I, I did this recently at the at the garage where I was getting my car fixed, and and the guy who was my service rep was saying that, his mother was suffering from COVID, and, and I said, I would, I would be lo- happy to pray for her. And he kind of gave mm-hmm. me the, uh, okay. And then I thought, <clears throat> what happens if I pray for her, and the next time I go back there, she's in worse shape? Yeah. What have mm-hmm. I done with my, my witness? And yep. what have I said about the power of prayer if things go south? Wow, Bill, that's such a great question. And I, I really think... Just in my own heart and perspective, even before it's anything public, that's something that I struggle with, that even in my relationship with the Lord, do I want to be that risky in expressing my faith that God can and loves to heal as an indicator of the ultimate healing to come, that am I that courageous to put it out Mm. there? And believe God can do that. And then when you go public with it, like you're saying, it feels even more risky. Yeah, it does. And I, I, I do think we need to be careful to not overpromise outside of God's revealed will. So there's his revealed will, which is clear to us that we need to pray in alignment with. And he may or may not will to heal your friend's mother. But I, I think there's a clear leading in the Bible to to pray courageously like that and faithfully believing God can and wants to do that without any guarantees. See, that's the problem is, is people in their faith 
can become presumptuous on God's sovereignty and, and say, I know your mother's going to be healed. I'm going to make sure it happens. And I mean, how embarrassing how many leaders had to apologize when they were when they said they got a word from the Lord that Trump was going to win the election. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now they have to say, well, I guess I was wrong or uh, we got cheated and it wasn't really wrong and he really actually did win and that's what God meant. And, it, and we just mess people up by doing that. And, and so it, it's a matter of praying with confidence and boldness and at the same time, a humility and a submission to God's sovereign will. So, I, I mean, I think it's beautiful what you said to him because you weren't guaranteeing her healing. You no. weren't saying, I know God's going to do this. But you said, I'm going to pray for you. And, and, and we don't just pray for healing. We pray for all sorts of Godward movement in her life and your friend's life and your life as you're called to pray for him. And so it's not just healing, but certainly I think we should do that too. When we take those risks like that too, Eric, about these kinds of prayers, I find myself sometimes saying something to the effect of, but nevertheless, that your will be done. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you process that. I think sometimes, if I'm being honest, that it's more of a psychological hedging of the bet as as opposed to that true place of submission, right? And and so yep. I, I, we can kind of weave in and out of both of those places, I would think. Yeah, and I actually think there's something biblically warranted in, I mean, weaving's probably a good word. Uh, I have I have a friend who's, uh, father was dying, and his his brother-in-law was on one side of the deathbed, and his brother was on the other side of the deathbed, and um, and one of the pastor, one of the guys was a Presbyterian minister, the other was a vineyard pastor, and it was like dueling prayers. The the vineyard pastor <laughs> pastor saying, "God heal him, heal him right now. We need him, Lord. We can't be without him. I know you're going to heal him." And then the Presbyterian pastor would start praying, and he'd say, Lord, take him. He's lived a good life. (laughs) We submit to what you're saying. And the truth is, I think you find both those perspectives in the Bible. And and I think weaving uh, both of that, those perspectives into our prayer life is important and, and, and an ability to do that. And so that's why I love diversity among people. In the, in the church that we can gather and pray based out of different traditions and backgrounds and inclinations. But but I do think weaving both the submission and sovereignty of God and a boldness and persistent prayer is is vital for us to get it right. And I certainly, Eric, want to be bold. You know, when you have someone that says, would you pray for me? I've got this yes. important meeting and I come out and say, oh, I will absolutely pray for you. I, I promise that you're going to be fantastic and God is going to be there with you and yep. you're going to have this this thing work out just great. I'm just confident. And then they call you the next day and they go, disaster. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> right. I, I, want, I want to be the super confident guy that says yeah. God's going to be there and he'll take care of you. And you'll, you know, I pray that what you want to have happen will have happen. And then I feel like a fool. But yeah, versus... that, that's why man, the, the biblical perspective that has a confidence in God's abiding presence, working for our good and his glory, but that still allows for 400 years in Egyptian captivity <laughs> and, and taking 10 plagues to get out of Egypt and then a parted Red Sea, and you still got this stiff-necked people in the desert. <laughs> but, but the whole time God is saying, I'm with you, Moses. I'm with you in this. Trust me. And with you doesn't mean it goes hunky-dory all the time. Right. And some, sometimes he's saying, I'm going to be with you because it's going to be so difficult. How about Paul? 
his job description, the only thing he knew about it when, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus was he's going to suffer everywhere he goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to be with you in all of it. Yeah. And I think that speaks to like we might have a perceived outcome of what is going to bring peace and shalom and harmony and all of that. But but sometimes God's outcomes are, are very or the way he brings about his outcome is going to be very different. And, and I hear we were just reading uh, as we headed into Lent, the story of the spirit leading jo- Jesus into the wilderness. And, and that was a very mm-hmm. like when is the last time we've prayed for somebody to be led into the wilderness? And, and clearly that happens in Scripture. Yeah. So, yeah, his first big public ministry event was his baptism. Spear comes upon him and anoints him for ministry. And then the first thing he does for him is lead him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And you talk about your first job assignment when you start a ministry. Who would ever pick that? But he's forging uh, an obedience that we need him to grow in, in our place. And so you're exactly right. Jesus is our example. He's the man of sorrows. We're about to start a series at our church called the man of sorrows mm-hmm. leading up to Easter. Uh, and that's a, that's a picture of Jesus. We don't often appreciate well enough. And, and I think that just it, some of that too, Eric, again, we get so used to the idea of what success metrics are to look mm-hmm. like in, in our American culture. And that's not bad America. Yeah. It just means that we sort of sometimes swim in certain values and we assume that those values are the same as the kingdom values, but maybe God's operating on a different plane. I'll say uh, just reading the Bible. It's so obvious that our preconceptions about how God will do things are so often wrong. And he's got such a different way of doing it. And like we said, even Jesus, who would have thought when God came to earth, he'd come in a manger, uh, only known to some, some shepherds and a poor couple on the run who grows up in a backwater village called Nazareth, where nothing good comes from. And he's a carpenter. And that's how God's going to come to earth and save humanity. And that difficulty in God's counterintuitive ways is one of the biggest problems we have walking in faith. So, Eric, we're going to go to break. Uh, Tell me again where Biola is in Los Angeles area. It is in beautiful La Mirada, California. Yeah, that's what I thought. Outside of Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Right on the border of Orange County. Yeah, yeah don't rub it in. Place. Don't rub it in. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Minnesota. Yeah, I swam. I swam for an don't hour care. today outside. Don't care. Well, <laughs> I was feeling pretty good about my sandals today yeah. at 40 degrees of weather. Now he's talking about swimming in the ocean. It's killing me. I, okay. Yeah, I swam this morning. What, uh, what was your first car? Oh, it was a motorcycle, actually. I had a Kawasaki LTD 750. I drove a motorcycle for years. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, once again, he's proving he's cooler than you and I will ever be. Ever be. Like, we can't even approximate the cool that he is. I'm trying to get an edge up on something here. There's nothing there. We'll be handing over our man cards at the end of this hour. All right. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with uh, Eric T-Dog in just a minute.
Welcome back to the show. We're having our purse series, the Peter Kapsner and I, and we're talking to <laughs> we Dr. Got this. Eric Tonis. Tonis, we got this this we time. We got it, right? We do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so, yeah. Eric, here's an interesting little comment that came in from a listener uh, named Mary Rose. She said, uh, Bill, you're exactly the one needed at the time. I'm talking mm. about offering prayer. Uh, she said, the one with no boldness, but just a quiet, gentle heart and spirit to say the quiet thing that God might be laying on you. Because you're the one there with the prayer. I don't think we need to become anything more than what we are in the moment and trust God that we are in the state of mind and heart we are in. That's just enough. That's beautiful. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's very nice. Yeah, it is. That's a, that's a beautiful invitation. It, and Eric, it's just the authenticity of it, right? That is what I'm hearing from that listener. And maybe you could speak to a bit about the authenticity of prayer, where you're not trying to whip yourself up into something that you're not and thinking that it might accomplish more than it otherwise would. Yeah, one of the things that makes me really sad is when young believers, new believers, unbelievers get around Christians and think if they're going to pray or do anything, it it needs to sound really impressive and King Jamesy and um, have all the right words. And I think one word prayer of help is something God mm. loves to hear. And it doesn't have to be flowery and fancy and perfect. And it needs to be, uh, yeah, where where you are from the heart, seeking God in that prayer and, and not something that you're looking to get a good grade on from a theology prof. Hmm. Where do you think that comes from, Eric? Just sort of this desire to have different kinds of language, different word choices, more flowery speech. Why why do we think we need to approach God in that way? Is there some maybe sort of origin of that that you'd be aware of? Well, I I just think it's a a performance mentality that we can have in general in life, that we want to look good in front of others. And then we project that on God that we somehow need to look good in front of him and and earn his hearing because our prayer is so impressive as if that could ever be the basis for, for him listening to us and rather than his amazing love for us and, and being made in his image. And so, yeah, I, I just think it probably comes from a, an instinct to perform in some way in front of others and in front of God. Eric, has your prayer life gone from more of a request and need based to more of a, a worship based over the last, you know, say 10 or 20 years? Yeah, uh, I probably, yeah, I, I think I, I've grown a bit in my communing with God and enjoying being in his presence and expressing my adoration to him. I do find a lot of supplication in the Bible, people crying out to God. I think he's honored by mm-hmm. Requests. It's it's not like he's saying, "Really, you're asking for stuff again." He he, he loves when we ask him to meet our needs because that's that's what he does. That's he gives us life and everything else. So he doesn't get weary of our requests, and and so I don't think adoration stops when we go into supplication. And it's I think he's honored and worshipped by prayers of repentance as well, and and so. So I, I do appreciate the the ACTS acronym, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I, I do think there's something right about that order where we're not just coming to God all the time with our shopping list. But but, but I, I don't want to overdo that. I, I want to see thanksgiving in the midst of confession. I, I want to see 
uh, supplication in the midst of adoration, because the Bible doesn't sort of segment them that much. And Eric, in this vein of how we approach God, one of my favorite stories in the biblical text is with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And, mm-hmm. and just the, the juxtaposition, I suppose, of how uh, Elijah approached Yahweh and how the prophets of Baal were approaching Baal. And they, they really did seem to be dancing and having all these histrionics to try to, to get Baal to move on their behalf. And, and Elijah's prayer was just a simple prayer of confidence that it didn't involve all of sort of this, these false gyrations that assumed that it would somehow move the God of heaven. And it seems like we could learn something between those two kinds of approaches. Oh, indeed, indeed. There is this supreme confidence that Elijah has contrasted with the prophets of Baal. And actually, the prophets of Baal aren't even the focus of that that story. It's the people of Israel. The prophets of Baal are this, this uh, catalyst to highlight the wavering of the people. How long will you literally limp, be, waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, mm. follow him. And it's the confidence that God is who he says he is, and he's the creator of all things. And so so there's this supreme confidence in who God is that doesn't require all of this, just like you say, these gyrations. And, and Elijah's mocking them. He's saying, so why don't you yell part, a little right? louder, cut yourself a little more. Maybe maybe your God's going aside and he's going to the bathroom right now. He just mocks this. I mean, it's sanctified mockery <laughs> based on the, the pitiful nature of these manufactured gods that are more user-friendly than Yahweh. But we see the result. And, and it is. It's this amazing confidence in God as the creator of all things. And I think with the simplicity, too, you know, in that confidence, we we were referencing earlier that there's certain things that Christians can sometimes say and, and especially be even repetitive in our prayer life. I think I'm curious in some of that, if it's just maybe a fear of praying in public. And so we almost get this verbal tick sometimes of saying the same phrase over and over again. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that's also at least to some degree in the same vein. Yeah. So we we've been having cor- uh, corporate prayer at our church 6.30 in the morning on Tuesday mornings, and it's been an amazing time. I've just loved it. And there are some really mature prayers in that group. And what I've, what I've been noticing is there isn't this sense of, okay, my turn, and then I do, I do my five and a half minutes or my four minutes, and then, and then you go. It's very conversational. So someone will pray something, and then Someone will say, oh, Lord, I so agree with that prayer. And, and what I want to add, and, and so there's this conversation we're having with God, not my little soliloquy that I need to have, <laughs> you know, tight and polished or anything. And a one-sentence prayer in response to someone else's prayer can be a beautiful punctuation on an exclamation mark on it. That I, I do think we need to think, especially in corporate prayer, more that way than let me do my little bit that will be impressive and polished and have some scripture woven into it rather than, than, than just truly talking to God together. You know, when I, when I talk to young preachers who are in this obvious performance mode, I'll say, just talk to us. Just talk to us. You don't need to, <laughs> to do a, a Shakespearean presentation. Just talk to us. Talk to me. And, and I feel the same way about prayer. Just talk to God. Just tell him, tell him what you're burdened by. Tell him what, you, what is causing anguish and anxiety in your life. T- tell him how much you love him and you thank him. And, and just have it more, more conversational. 
I, I agree. I almost like the word talk better than I like the word pray. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think I, you're right. I, I love yeah. pray, but I love the word talk. And I think if you have just in conversation with God, just like you're talking to a friend, I think you will continue in that longer than if I now have to get down and pray. Hmm. I don't know. No, I, it's a semantics. I think isn't it? that's no, brilliant. It's I think that's brilliant. I just decided okay, so, as you were say, talking. Say that again. So yeah, I can that on the he seems to be marking this up on the no, chalkboard right now. Yes, everybody, quiet. I I'll say it again, Eric. I, I just decided as you were talking that from now on, I am going to start saying, "Hey, let's talk to God about this." <laughs> Thank you. It, right. And it, it, I mean, it, in theory, it means the same thing. But I think you're right. I think simply the word "pray." Gives people a sense of, oh, okay, uh, this is, oh, I got to get this right. Instead of, we better talk to God about this. And I think that would change the dynamic and people would feel more freedom. And then when we are praying, it seems that we often say, and, and Lord, I pray for Eric. Uh, and I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, if I'm just putting out a blanket, God, I'm praying for Eric. I don't know what I'm praying about for Eric, or I don't know what specifics, but I'm praying for him. Might we also yeah. say, Lord, I want to ask on behalf of Eric, who obviously, it, you know, needs help in this area. How specific yeah. should we be, or do we just use that blanket word pray all the time? Yeah, I, I think it's probably a really good idea to mix up the words we use so we don't get stuck mm-hmm. in maybe just one idea about what we're doing here. And and I do, yeah, that's a really good idea to to not just stay with, one one way of talking about what we're doing with God when we commune with Him together or individually. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that would be really helpful to to free things up a little bit and make it more relational. I think with the practicality of what you're saying, too, Eric, it's, I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, how often have I actually been taught about just these different sort of very easy entry points into prayer. I I don't, in your life in the church, have you, can you think of a lot of times where you've been in meetings or you've been with other pastors or you've just been with people and just really got in sort of the the nitty gritty of what prayer can be like both alone and together in these ways? Because it seems so invitational when you talk about the the actual parts of it, as opposed to just saying, hey, you should go pray about it. But what does it mean to really pray together and and be together in this? Yeah, I love that. So I love the local church, and I love that we practice spiritual disciplines together, but I've some so come to appreciate the way they interrelate with one another, so it's not prayer, and then word, and then yeah. fellowship, and then missions, and, and evangelism. It's, it's this beautiful amalgam of all these things interrelatedly working. So... I'll never. So we were praying one time at our church years ago, and a man started asking for prayer for something that I thought was ridiculous. <laughs> and I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking to myself, oh, come on, man. That's just like one of the 30 things on my list of things to do. We don't need to pray about this. People are dying without Jesus, and you're asking us to pray about this little administrative thing in your life? You can't. And I was really judgmental. And. And we went to prayer, and a woman in my church, a godly woman in my church, Mindy Price, she starts praying. She's the first one, and she said, Lord, thank you for the way this dear brother just reminded us that you care about even the little things in our lives. You have the hairs of our head numbered, and there's nothing that we're concerned about that isn't a concern of yours. Daggers of conviction in my heart. (laughs) I was so 
so convicted by my attitude. And so, so we're praying, but Mindy Price is rebuking me with her loving, godly spirit toward this brother and this, this knowledge of God. So and we're praying, but I'm being rebuked. I'm experiencing a level of church discipline in that moment through Mindy's example. I'm, I'm being um, encouraged by her example, and, and I'm experiencing fellowship. So it, we're not just praying. We're, we're being the church together anytime we gather like that. And so sitting and listening to a sermon, I should be prayerful saying, Lord, what do you want me to learn? Lord, that their sister over there looks really sad. Would you use the word right now to encourage her? That, that prayer doesn't stop when we're doing word or word when we're doing prayer or fellowship when we're doing anything. So that interrelatedness of church life has been, become something I've learned to deeply appreciate. All right, we'll take a little break. Uh, Our special guest is Dr. Eric Taunas. We'll be right back. We're back with Dr. Eric Taunas, and he is the professor and chair of theology at Biola University, and we're talking about prayer. And, and, and Eric, we're kind of, we want to sort of angle to something you said to us last time you were with us, where you were uh, getting ready to write a book on like 20 or 30 things Christians should stop doing or saying. Super right. intrigued yeah, by this, Eric. Yeah, we yeah. were so intrigued, intrigued by that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the title is uh, actually 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. I don't want to be too dogmatic. <laughs> it's very invitational, Eric. It's very invitational. Yeah, All right. Yeah, and, uh, and the subtitle is A Plea for Biblical Precision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't want to sell any copies of that, Peter and I will write the forward to it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Back cover the whole thing, Eric. We're, we're in on this. Yeah. So is, has it been released yet, or are you still in the process of no, writing it? No, no, I'm, I'm writing it for Moody, and we'll—, we'll uh, Hopefully get it done before too long, or I'm going to have to start saying I should probably stop saying I'm writing a book called 20 Things Christians <laughs> So, So can you give us a sneak preview without giving away all the punchlines? Can you give us, like, number 11 or something like that? Uh, yeah, let's see. How much controversy do I want to stir up here? Not um, a lot, because i got 12 minutes to go, and I want to have a okay, peaceful yeah. evening. Um, yeah, so... I, I think we should stop saying probably sin is sin. It's all the same to God uh, because in every one of these sayings has truth in them. That, that's why we say them, but I think they're misleading uh, and not, not thoroughly biblical. So sin is sin. It's all the same to God is true in the sense that any sin I commit indicates a rebellious heart toward God, which I equally share with every other human who's ever lived. We're all equally sinful, equally depraved, because I haven't, because someone hasn't committed a kind of sin or an amount of sin doesn't put them in some category of needing Jesus' forgiveness any less than anyone else. So there's truth to that statement. Uh, but the, the wrongness of it is many, many, many times the Bible talks about degrees of sin. Hmm. It does. I mean, God takes Ezekiel on a tour of Jerusalem. And in eight times he says, and now I will show you a far greater sin. 
and and he just takes them on this progressive tour of how bad it's gotten. Jesus contrasts the sin of rejecting the Messiah in Jerusalem to Sodom and Gomorrah and says, you're, you're, you're worse off. You, you've got a worse sin problem than Sodom and Gomorrah does. So I, when we read the Bible, we realize, well, there is a progression of sinfulness and sinful expression and a, a for getting further and further away from the intent of God's design for things. And so it's just simplistic to say sin is sin. It's all the same to God. And Eric, do you think it's fair to say in light of that, uh, what you're saying is that all sin does disconnect us, as you said, but if you think about maybe a sin as throwing a, a pebble in a pond and the rippling impact that that sin might have in the lives of those around you versus sometimes throwing a boulder in the pond, that uh, it does seem like there's certain egregious acts that just have a rippling impact in each other's lives that that really causes greater and lesser degrees of pain or, or turmoil, uh, things that are somehow harder to forgive. I, I don't know if you could even speak to that a little bit. I know I have young people that say, I just can't, I'm having such a hard time forgiving that. And, and is, could it be that it was just because that was a boulder in the pond compared to maybe a pebble or something like that? Yeah, so the Bible makes distinctions in degrees of sin for all kinds of reasons. Peter, you're talking about the the ramifications. Some sin is seen as worse because it has more devastating ramifications than other sin, more a greater effect. Uh, but but other times the Bible says, regardless of the effect, some sin is done literally in the Bible in the in the Old Testament with a high hand. In other words, with your fist raised to God, this is mm. this is intentional. It's explicit. It's defiance consciously. There's sin done in ignorance. It's still sin, but it's seen with a, a different degree. There's there's sin done with more knowledge than other sins. Uh, the effect is certainly one of them, but but there are other factors as well. And see, the first point that we're all equally sinful. Yes, that kills any self righteousness, which is why Jesus says, "Oh, Pharisee." So you've never committed adultery. Well, have you lusted uh, in your heart for a woman? Because you do know that's adultery there, right? Mm. And and so it kills self-righteousness or comparing myself to someone else. But what we don't then want to do is say, so there's really no difference between a lustful thought and actually committed adultery. It's just the same. No, no. It's a progression. And so I I don't want to lose – God knows the difference between stealing an apple to feed your family and mass murder. And when we just say it's all the same to God, what kind of God is that Mm. that doesn't know the difference between those two? Yeah, that's really helpful. How would you counsel somebody then, too, that's maybe dealing with those ramifications of sin that is trying to forgive? Does forgiveness sometimes come in stages for people? Does it come in layers? How does this work? Because I think people really do authentically want to forgive, but they really are just that hurt sometimes. Yeah, so you're talking about a person who is called to forgive someone who's hurt them. Right, exactly. Yeah, I would I would want them to feel tremendous freedom to yes, submit to God's command to to forgive because you've been forgiven much. And I really do think that's where Christian forgiveness starts. Mm-hmm. That I am never in the position of God who never needs forgiveness. I'm the position of a sinner who's been forgiven. I need to start there. I'm not the judge of all the earth. He is. But then I need to allow myself to go through a process of saying, yes, I, I'm committing to forgive this person. And then 30 seconds later, I feel unforgiving. And I say, well, I guess I'm a big phony. <laughs> instead, of, <laughs> instead of, oh, right, I need to recommit right now. And well, I went an hour. Look, look at that. I went an hour. 
without any feelings of unforgiveness toward this person. And then you stretch it to a half a day and then a week before you know it. And then you can go months. And before you know it, you actually have aligned your feelings with your commitment to be a forgiving person. Wow, that's so good. That's so good. All right, Eric, I just one more tease, if you don't mind. This is such good stuff. Uh, I know you got one more in your head. Yeah, which one should I pick? Um, how about... Oh, boy, that's going to open a can of worms. Yeah, don't um, do that. I got <laughs> all right, all right, yeah, six I don't minutes have time left. For that. Uh, all right, how about... Uh, I, I actually... This is going to be a huge can of worms, but I don't even have to explain it. I'm, you guys have to. You have to show up next time. But no, that's I, true. Thanks a lot, pal. I actually, I really wonder if we should use pastor as a title. Um, it, it's certainly a, a role that leaders in the church play. But once we call the guy who gets paid a pastor, and we don't call the banker who's an elder who's shepherding people by that title, Pastor Jim then I, I wonder if we're confusing people with what it means to be a shepherd elder. Mm. Boom. Yeah, Boom. I, wow. I, we definitely see the worms <laughs> laying on the floor in the yeah. studio here right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the appropriate place. I mean, is there, is, when you think back on it, is there biblical, there's certainly biblical support that God gives people different giftings on behalf of equipping the saints but, for, for ministry, but, but where do we see the invitation to have sort of this hierarchy of paid pastors as part of this model? Maybe, maybe we don't see that in the text. Well, I, I don't see it as this primarily a vocational thing that you are called because you get a check for it and have a seminary degree. I, I really don't see that. And I, I'm just really concerned that, that one of the best books on pastoral ministry I've read is John Piper's Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And when, when pastoral ministry became a vocation primarily and a profession rather than a, a ministry that God calls all of God's people to, but then some to greater responsibility to take on that pastoral role. But once it becomes a title, and I, I, I'm now Pastor Joe, and that means, like I said, the, the, the guy who is a farmer but is shepherding and pastoring people doesn't get the title. I think we're confusing people on what ministry really is. And then just one thing, one more bomb before I go, <laughs> I, just, I don't think— I don't think we should name ministries after people. Mm. I just can't yeah. imagine Paul of Tarsus ministries. <laughs> Paul would Paul would just cringe at that thought and tear his clothing. I, yeah, and it goes along with the title thing that you, you get this title and then you're different than everybody else. And then you whine about, oh, I don't have any friends. Well, I wonder why. <laughs> But I think it's, you know, it, it really is a fair point. It's when, it, when I teach an intro to ministry class, it's one of the first conversations we have with, with the young people. So did you get the burning bush moment for your call versus somebody who's in the teaching program right now or somebody who's maybe studying pre-law or chemistry or something? Why, why do we elevate or why do we assume that this has a special sense of call associated with it? Uh, are we maybe just overlaying what happened with Moses and some of the other biblical characters and assume that's the way it works in paid organizational ministry? Yeah, Paul's Paul's a leather worker. His whole ministry. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's important to to see ministry as something we're all called to, some to greater degrees of it, perhaps, in, in different roles of leadership. But that we're all called to. And I don't even use the term bivocational anymore. I'm multivocational because mm. anything I'm called to do is is a vocation I'm applying myself to, whether you paid for it or not.
Love that. That's going to cause trouble. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We love it, that. though. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to come back on and mop up this mess. Yeah. <laughs> no. no. You can just get on your Kawasaki motorcycle with the blonde yeah. locks and yeah, right. the beach, buddy. So, yeah, so right. I'm riding into the sunset. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Eric, it's so much fun. Thank oh, you for amazing. doing the show. God, you know. you're a blast. Thank you. you got, you're going to come back, though, aren't you? If we call, of course. Okay, yes. good. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, Love it. What a Indeed. relief. All right, that's great. Thanks, Eric. Have a great right, uh, rest You're of the afternoon. Yep. All, All right. right. All right, Peter. That was a blast. Oh boy, he really does. He just, always it, delivered. It's one of those things, and you said it at the beginning of our of our show here that. Um, we didn't do a ton of research or prep on this, but but with Eric, you don't have to because he's such a student of the word. He's such a student of of longtime ministry in real people's lives. So you can ask him just about anything, and, and he can take you into some really pl- deep places of wisdom. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, and he does it with uh, great humility, too. He does. He, yeah, he's a gentle I, spirit. I yeah. really appreciate him. Yeah, I'm, I'm compelled by people who would be described as people of good cheer. Yeah. And, and I think he's a person of good cheer, and, and it just gets sort of the sense that he's anchored in a different kind of kingdom, in a different kind of place, working in life with different kinds of metrics that that uh, he talks a lot about formation. I know Biola is a place that cares a lot about formation, where your character is actually being formed. Yeah. And, and uh, boy, he seems to represent that. We should probably stop saying nice things about him because he's still on the line listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah well, we're, and, and in fairness, we're still upset about this whole motorcycle oh, totally. and beach thing, are we not? Totally. Yeah, yeah. completely. Right. Anyway, that wraps up our show. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you have a great evening as you lay your head on the pillow. Just be assured that God is working out his great plan in your life and he loves you. I love you. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm looking forward to our time together. Guy Talk will be happening. Peter will be back with me. Looking forward to it. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.